Amen. Thank you, Alicia and Melissa. As we look at the scriptures this morning, I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be using the PowerPoint this morning because uh, what we have before us in this passage, I think, will help as I walk you through this. So if you're in first through sixth grade, you can slip out now at this time for our children's church and also for music practice to begin with is why the fourth through sixth graders will be going to, uh, to practice for uh, tonight, also for next Sunday, I believe, one of those or both. Uh, but um, the rest of us are turning to Genesis chapter 3. You get there, we'll calm our hearts and minds and look to the Lord in prayers as I begin the sermon this morning. Fathers, we've just heard testified in song, we come with imperfect faith that longs to be full. We come as children seeking to hear from you, and I pray that this morning that you would give all of us a special attention, that you would give us a heart that is open and clear, that we may better understand your word and better, better understand our place and our our status before you as your children and how the gospel has worked itself out as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've never mined for gems before. Uh, I know there are, uh, on the History Channel, some shows that would show you, reveal to you what it looks like to mine for gold and mine for gems. And uh, from everything that I've seen and everything that I've researched, it's very, very hard work that's almost never rewarding. But when you hit the payload, you hit it big time. And to, to mine and dig and to put in the work and to find a priceless, sometimes priceless jewel at the end of that labor, the, the response almost unilaterally, almost across the board of the ones that I've researched and seen, people would say, uh, that was hard work, but it was worth it. I want to tell you at the beginning of the sermon this morning that... Um, this sermon has been hard work to prepare and organize, and your listening this morning may need to be a little more attentive, is why I prayed for God's blessing that way, and you may need to do a little bit more mental exercise this morning, but I promise you that as you work out that effort, you will find that your effort will be rewarded, and so I want you to know that up front, not to intimidate you, but to excite you and to encourage you and also know that as we get a few minutes into the sermon and you go, okay, this is, I'm tracking with you, but this is taking a little more mental energy than a normal Sunday morning. I want you to know that I know that on your end. And if you will stay with me and if you will stay plugged in, I promise you at the end of the sermon, you will find a priceless jewel that will fuel your worship in a way that's amazing. Okay, and that, that, will, that will maybe even give you information in regards to the gospel that had not clicked in your mind before. And so that's why we've turned to Genesis chapter 3. I'm preaching a series through Isaiah chapter 9 
where the people who've walked in darkness have had the light of God shined on them, and this light is revealed throughout Isaiah chapter 9, and in verse 6, Isaiah prophesies that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and we've been working through the four names that are given to the prophesied Messiah, and that is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. This morning we'll be looking specifically at that third name, that title given to Jesus, Everlasting Father. In order for us to understand this concept of what Isaiah prophesies, we are going to have to delve into and understand two topics two aspects of our Christian life, one having to do with how we view the Word of God and the other with what a core seed of the gospel is. And so I'm actually going to give you this morning two terms that for some of you are going to be old hat and you've known them because you've heard them before and for others of you may be brand new. I'm going to put them on the screen. I'm going to put the definition on the screen. I'm going to put some cross references on the screen so that together we can work through this because when you grasp this and when you understand what Isaiah has prophesied, it will fuel your worship and bring you to a thanksgiving for what God has offered in salvation. And so to begin the, back, the, the, the first concept that we're going to talk through, I'd like to begin with an illustration. For those of you who know our property well, if you've been around for any time, especially those who are familiar with the Christian school ministry that we operate, we, uh, when we have the kids play out on the field or we have games for our teams out on the field, on the back side of the field, there is only one part of shade on the entire field, and it is this gigantic gigantic tree. I think it's an oak tree. I'm not an arborist, but I'm, I think it's an oak tree. I think it's a gigantic oak tree. And if, if it's not an oak tree, and you know better than me, then we're just going to pretend like it's an oak tree this morning, okay? Now, what's amazing about that tree is not only the beauty of it and the grandeur of it, and, and so many of you after the sermon will go out and you'll look at it and you'll go, whoa, that is a really big tree. I've never noticed that was there before, but now you know it's there. It's this huge oak tree, but what's incredible about that oak tree is not only its size and grandeur, what's also just dumbfounding is that it began as an acorn. Like everything about that tree was contained in a little teeny tiny acorn. And at one point, years ago, somebody took an acorn and they planted that acorn and a sapling grew. Now, I don't know, it probably was not in that spot. That probably was put there when we developed the land many, many years ago, right? But, but at some point, that acorn was planted and it sprouted into a sapling, this little teeny tiny sapling, you know, the ones that you and I pull out of our yard and pull out of our garden in the spring because we don't want them to grow there, right? And what's incredible is that you can look at that little sapling, you can even look at that acorn, and you can look at that giant oak tree that's been there for 50 plus years. And you can say all three of those are the same thing. The sapling is an oak tree, and that is an oak tree. 
And even the little teeny tiny seed that's sprouting in the middle of that acorn is in its essence an oak tree. And if all you knew about oak trees were acorns, you could know something, but you wouldn't know all there is to know. And if all you knew about oak trees was a sapling, you would know something and you would get it correct. But you wouldn't have the full picture as if you went out on the back of the soccer field and you saw this gigantic acorn of what, it's a gigantic oak tree of what an oak tree can really be. Now, I give you that illustration because we're going to talk about, about a concept in the Christian life, and we're going to get to Everlasting Father, okay, I promise. But you have to understand these two things in order to get there. It's called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. That is how the scripture is given to us. What is progressive revelation? It's a progression of movement in the scriptures from a truth to more truth, and then on to full truth. It is a seed that is planted in the Old Testament that grows as the Old Testament is revealed through the prophets and then comes into full maturity in the New Testament. It is the same truth. But it is progressively revealed to us in greater and greater depth. There's a theologian named Alec Motyer, I think I said that right, um, who has written a lot on this topic. You may find his writings very helpful if you'd like to look into this more. But when you think of truth, we don't look at the Old Testament and say the truth of the New Testament supersedes or changes the Old Testament in any way. But what it does is it grows it up and reveals it to us. And I'm going to give you an illustration of this. I've had you turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'd like you to look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Adam and Eve have fallen. God has come to them and is going to pronounce a curse on the ground on, on men, on women, just, just the fall has repercussions. And here's what God says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Look at verse 15. Very, very important. I will put enmity, or I will put fighting, strife, between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, O serpent, crush your head, is, a, is maybe perhaps a better rendering of that word, and you, serpent, shall bruise his offspring of the woman head, his heel, excuse me, heel. The offspring of the woman will bruise the serpent's head, will crush the serpent's head, and the, the, the serpent will bruise the offspring's heel. Okay? Now, we look at Genesis 3.15, and what God has done for us is he's planted a seed of the gospel at the very beginning of Genesis. So Adam and Eve, this is what they knew about Jesus. He's the offspring of the woman who will be the serpent crusher, 
but he will also be bruised. In other words, he will win, but he's going to get hurt in the process. That's all they knew. Is that true, yes or no? Yes, that's true. It's true so much, in fact, that we actually refer to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. This is it. That God says everything has been broken, but one day everything will be mended. Everything has been cursed, but one day there will be a serpent crusher who will come, who will reverse this curse. And Adam and Eve, you need to believe that. And so by faith in that revelation, they were counted as righteous. A seed, a seed planted, an acorn planted that over the next six to 8,000 years, God would grow into a beautiful picture of the gospel. You see, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, we discover that the serpent crusher would come through Abraham. And then we discover that he would come through Isaac, and we can see this plant, this tree growing. Then at the end of Genesis, we find this rescuer would be found from the seed of the line of Judah. And as we continue to read and we get through 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find out that the serpent crusher, this rescuer, this Messiah, the one who would crush Satan would be the king of Israel and he would come through the line of David. And then in Isaiah we find out that this rescuer would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin. And the bruising of this hero shown in Genesis 3.15 would actually be the will of the Lord to crush him and to bruise him. And this hero in some way would be some sort of suffering servant. And then we get to the end of by uh, the Old Testament and we see that the serpent crusher, this bruised suffering servant, in order for him to come there would need to be one like Elijah that would come and prepare the way before him. And then we turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 and it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this tree is growing. You see that? And, and throughout Scripture, we see progressively that the truth that God wants them to believe is, is growing up and maturing. And, and the responsibility of God's people at every point along the moment of this progressive revelation is simply to believe what God has revealed. And friends, we live in a point where we have the full revelation of God, and so your responsibility is great. The responsibility of your faith and, and understanding is greater than that of Adam and Eve. Because this revelation has been given to you in totality. And so now, in Matthew 1, in verse 1, we have a name and identity to the serpent crusher. But as he reveals himself even more, we, we realize that he has not come to crush all of, of, of those who who uh, disagree with, with God yet, but he's come to save spiritually, not politically. And so 
Jesus lives a perfect life in full obedience to the law, and then this hero is bruised by dying on the cross for the sins of the world, and then he conquers by rising from the grave. And then we see in the epistles that this was God's plan all along to take the message of salvation to the Gentiles so that all who come to Jesus in faith will be saved. And so we have this beautiful tree that's growing up and growing up, and then finally we get to Revelation, and we see this future projection of Jesus totally crushing Satan and setting up his earthly throne as he crushes the serpent's head and he casts the serpent into the lake of fire and sets up his rule and reign physically on the new heavens and the new earth where his people will live with him for all of eternity. And then we have this beautiful tree that's finally in full bloom and we say this is the picture of Genesis 3.15. To where it doesn't change the Old Testament. It doesn't correct the Old Testament. It expands it and progressively reveals more and more and more. This is going to be a terrible illustration that I'm going to give you. When I was a kid, I had a toy named Stretch Armstrong. You guys remember Stretch Armstrong? Right? And he looked normal, but his arms could stretch, and they would never really truly go back, like the commercial said. That's because you'll always be disappointed with things on this earth, kids, right? And, um, and he would stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch. And that's what progressive revelation is, is taking this truth and it's revealing it to you more and more and more. Progressive revelation. You need to know that. As a child of God, you need to know that. Why? Because it changes how you read Scripture, friend. It informs your your understanding of how God has revealed himself. And it is vital for you to understand that in order for you to understand Isaiah 9-6. Now, I want to give you a warning. Before I give you a warning, I want to give you some... um, some proof in Scripture that this is how God works. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. You see that? You see how the author of Hebrews here in Hebrews chapter 1 kind of shows us this is what's happening. God spoke to the, uh, the prophets, our fathers, but now he's spoken to us by his Son, who he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I want to give you a warning. Progressive revelation is not a movement from wrong to right, from error to truth, but rather from truth to more truth and on to full truth. There are very popular preachers who would encourage you to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament because somehow the New Testament's not relevant, the Old Testament's not relevant, and that somehow... The New Testament kind of corrects the Old Testament anyway. So everything you need to know about God you can find in the New Testament. And friends, that is not the case. The New Testament assumes that you know the Old Testament really well. Lots of allusions, lots of pictures, lots and lots of of illustrations being pulled from the Old Testament. And so progressive revelation is not a movement from wrong to right from error to truth, but rather from truth to more truth and on to full truth. 
Let me tell you where little errors like this creep into your Christianity. You don't even know it. And, and for some of you, you're going to smile because you know this is a little bit of a hobby horse of mine, okay? But um, I think The Chosen is a great show for its entertainment, but not for its theology. The problem is once you watch it, now you know what Jesus looked like. So whenever you're reading, you start reading those details into the Bible. So I would just ask you to be careful, and I will give you an illustration. There is a point where Jesus looks at his disciples and the Jews, and he says the following statement. The question is asked, have you come to negate the law of Christ? And his response in the movie is what? I am the law. But friends, that is false theology. Because that is a statement that Jesus has replaced and it should be seen in place of the Old Testament. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, I have come to fulfill the law. And the writer was confronted on this and asked, why did you change that? And he said, because I thought it sounded better. And you think, oh, no, it's entertainment. So treat it for entertainment's sake. Don't get your theology from it, friends. We have to be careful in that we are shaping our, our mindset in Scripture from Scripture. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go watch The Chosen. You want to watch The Chosen, you know, that's fine. That's between you and your family. You don't want to watch The Chosen? Don't watch it. You don't watch it? Watch it. It's up to you. I'm just telling you, don't get your theology from it. Get your theology from Scripture. Okay, now, progressive revelation. Pastor Joe, that was really neat last 20 minutes explaining that. What in the world does that have anything to do with Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6? Because that supposedly is what you're preaching through. So maybe bring this full circle for me, okay? Good question. I'm going to do that. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Look with me at that third statement there on the screen, or if you have Isaiah 9 in front of you, that, that is given from Isaiah about Jesus. His name shall be called. So this is talking about who Jesus is. Let me give you two things that Isaiah, two definitions, two concepts that Isaiah is not communicating, but that many people think Isaiah is communicating. He is not saying that Jesus is equal to the Father because he's saying Jesus is the everlasting Father. And if you know anything about the Trinity, you took our Bible Institute class on the Trinity, you've taken a Sunday school class on the Trinity, if you read on the Trinity, you just got red flags going off in your mind and you say, whoa, 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 Pastor Joe, the Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Spirit and the Son is not the Spirit because they're three distinct persons and yet there is one God and that is correct because in the Trinity... There is one God with three persons, one essence, three subsistences, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He is not the Father. It is important for us to distinguish between the Father, Son, Spirit, but we cannot divide them for they are one God. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Isaiah is not saying that Jesus is the Father incarnate. That is incorrect. 
And that's it's good because that's not what he's, what he's saying here, okay? He also is not saying that he is equal with the Father because that's not literally what he said. He said, his name shall be called Everlasting Father. So there must be something different that he means by Everlasting Father. Secondly, Isaiah is not just saying that Jesus is going to be a fatherly figure. Some other people would believe that. It's true that Jesus is truly God in every sense of the term. Full deity. And it is true that Jesus assumed a fatherly role with his disciples. He often referred to them as my little children. John 13, you little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. Now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And so it is true that Jesus assumed a fatherly role with his disciples. That is a true statement. However, that's not what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 9, 6. That's not the thrust of this passage. And so before we see what it is, we have to see what it is not. Yes, Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, but that is not what Isaiah is saying. Yes, Jesus assumed a fatherly role and position with his disciples, but that is not what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is planting a seed. Progressive revelation, that's why we talked about progressive revelation. Isaiah is planting a seed. Just like God did in Genesis 3.15 with the serpent crusher. So Isaiah is planting an acorn here. And he's saying this is going to be more fully revealed in the rest of scripture. And so we've taught you a term called progressive revelation. Hopefully that's not intimidating to you anymore. Just think of an oak tree. And secondly, I would like to teach you a term... It's a little bit more intimidating, but we can, we can understand this. I told you we're mining this gem, remember? The term is federal headship. Federal headship. Now, don't, don't tune out, and please don't be intimidated. I'm going to walk us through this, okay? Federal headship. We're taking our pick. We're going down in the mine. We're starting to sweat a little bit. You're staying plugged in. You're attentive. We understand progressive revelation. We know now that Isaiah has just taken this seed of federal headship and he's placed it in the ground. What is federal headship? Well, we actually live in a country that models this for us because we have a type of government called a what? A federal government. It works. Because believe it or not, the seeds of this concept of federal, a federation, is actually given to us in the gospel. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. What does federal headship mean? Two words, federal headship. A federal federal concept means you have an advocate or a representative. You have someone acting on your behalf. That's what the word federal means. Headship means that everything that this advocate or representative does is deposited, or if you want to use a big word, it's imputed into the life 
of who they're representing. And I'm going to give you an illustration of what that looks like in our civil government. And hopefully you'll understand the picture of where we're going. Again, let's not tune out here. One person acting on behalf of another another, with the decisions of that representative imputed or deposited into the other person's life. Now, we see this enacted all the time in our House of Representatives, both locally and federally. When a law comes up, if you're from, from southern Michigan or if you're from Indiana, when a law, when a law comes up in your state... The state cannot assemble everyone in the state in order to vote on that law. It would be physically impossible to do that every time a law comes up. Instead, we have sent what to the House of Representatives? We have sent advocates on our behalf. And so what we do is we get together, we choose someone, and we say, you take my vote to the House of Representatives for me so that you can vote on my behalf. And so when the House of Representatives gives together, hopefully they're a representation of the entire country, and they represent us. We have that on the, on the state level, both a House and a Senate. We have that on the federal level, both a House and a Senate. It's the way our government is set up. It's a federal government. It's a government of representatives, a person who acts on your behalf. And when they act on your behalf, trust me, it impacts your life. Because if they pass a new tax bill, it's going to impact you, right? And you say, I didn't vote for that. Well, yes, you did, or you should have, because you chose your representative. And if they pass a tax cut, it affects you. Guess what? If they vote to go to war Guess who's at war? You are. You're at war because your representative chose that. And if they vote for peace and a peace agreement is signed, guess who's at peace? You are. Why? Because we have a federal system. Now, I, I know this is a lot, friends, but as we're digging down, you, we, we're going to get to this mind, this jewel that Isaiah is giving to us that I think is going to be priceless for your Christian walk. In our sin, Adam is our father. In our righteousness, Christ is our father. When Adam sinned, he is our federal head. He is our representative. Thus, when he sinned, we all died. We all sinned with him, just like when our representative votes to go to war. Thus, we are all at war. So when Adam sinned, we all became sinners. You're not a sinner because you do wrong things. You do wrong things because you are by nature a sinner. You are fallen. You are at enmity with God. You are born a child of wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You don't, have to, you don't have to teach a child to know how to be selfish and to lie and to steal. You don't have to teach a child to that. It's, it, it, how to do that. It's part of their nature. And so Adam is your federal head. And so you need a new representative. It's not a political statement. That's a spiritual statement. You need a new representative. You need a new head. You need a new father. And so when Christ came, he becomes our new federal head. He becomes the father of the new people of God. 
That's the seed that Isaiah plants, that he will be a father that's everlasting to God's people. He will be a new head of a race. He will be the new head of a family because you need a new spiritual representative. And Jesus is that one. Pastor Joe, that sounds great. Prove it, right? Prove it with scripture. I'll do just that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as by man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Okay? You see that? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And all of a sudden the seed that's planted starts to come up it starts to form and you say wow i'm starting to see that my sin was 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 represented by adam that when he sinned death passed upon all men and 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 i died in adam just like when your representative again to continue to tie these together when your representative in the house of representatives in the senate votes for war so you are at war thus when adam sinned You sinned. You died. He is your federal head. He is your representative. Continues on later in that chapter. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who is that? That's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. You get your physical life from Adam. If Adam had never existed, you wouldn't be here. And you get your spiritual life through Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that there are all of these parallels in Scripture between Adam and Jesus. The first Adam, the last Adam. How does that all come together in this idea of representative? I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to have it on the screen for those of you who do not have a Bible with you this morning. But I think it's vitally important that if you have a Bible, that you open it to Romans chapter 5 so that you can see this coming straight from the pages of Scripture. I've said before, I'll say it again, the most, don't take offense to this, but the most beautiful view from up here of you is the top of your head, right? As you have your nose down in Scripture, and as we're pointing to the Word, and you are seeing God's Word for yourself. Romans chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. We could spend a month in verses 12 through, uh, we're going to look down all the way through verse 19. We're going to hit, just hit some highlights here, okay? I'm going to put it on the screen. Knowing what I just walked through, having that present in your mind, I would like for you to, to see if you can see this worked out in Romans chapter 5, Okay? Here we go. Let's start reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
Who is that? That's Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And we could spend a long time pulling that apart. We won't. The basic gist of that is that the law of God is written on everyone's heart. And so we're responsible to respond to the revelation that we have. And even though the law had not been clearly given as it was in Exodus chapter 20, going against God's revelation is still sin. Look at that last phrase, who was a type or a foreshadow or a picture. Adam was a picture of the one who is to come. Now, let's go down to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And if we kind of change that, that sentence structure around to help us understand what he's saying, here's what he's saying. If you died through Adam, then you can live through Christ. If a man was your representative at the fall, then a man can be your representative on the cross. That's an equal exchange. That's why, side note, that's why Jesus had to be fully man. If you are found in Adam to be dead, so you can be found in Christ to be alive. Do you see that? Then verse 18 gives us a therefore. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all Men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. There's federal headship. There is the seed that's planted in Isaiah 9, 6 come to full bloom because here's what Paul in this doctrinal treatise of the book of Romans is giving you. You need a new father. Do you remember what Christ tells the Pharisees who say, well, we're the descendants of, of Abraham and we'll, we're full-blooded Jews and, and, and we belong to the promise. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, no, it's not those who are of the promise of blood lineage that are people's gods, but those who are lineage by faith. You are of your father, the devil. That's federal headship. That means that they have a head representative in their life that is that represents sin, that in Adam they died and Satan remains their father. They are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. And in order for you to gain access to God, you need a new father. You need a new federal head. You need a new representative because your old one will simply send you to hell. You need someone else to be found in, rather than being in sin. You need to be found in Christ. 
as Paul uses that phrase over and over and over and over again. Being found in him, not having my own righteousness, he says to the church of Philippi, but the righteousness which is found by faith in Christ. That I exchange the father of sin to the father of righteousness. That exchange has to happen. And when Isaiah says that he shall be called the everlasting father, it means that Jesus, he's prophesying that Jesus will be the head of a a new people. That Jesus will be the representative. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That we have a new representative for us who lives with God and is seated at the right hand of God who is God. And it's Jesus Christ. It's me excited and I'm just getting over a cold. Isn't that amazing? Man. Some of you need to tell your face that's amazing. I mean, that's incredible. (coughs) That he is the new father, that he is your new representative. I mean, the application of this, and I wasn't going to say, I was going to say this at the end, but let's go ahead and get there now. The application of this is that, friend, one day you will die and you will meet God and somebody will be your representative between you and God. Somebody will be your advocate. And it's either going to be Satan or it's going to be Jesus. That's the implication of this. Either you will have the old man or you will have the new man. Either you have the first Adam or you will have the last Adam. And friend, when you come to Jesus by faith, when you you humble yourself, when you turn from your sins and turn to Christ, crossing that bridge of faith to get to Christ, everything changes. Your advocate changes. Your representative changes. It's not up for a vote, okay? Only through repentance and faith do you find Jesus as your new head. Adam brought sin into this world. Death came as a result of sin. Death reigned from Adam to Moses because sin was passed down and continues to reign. If death came through one man, life could come through one man. And so the obedience of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Where Adam fell short, Jesus succeeded. Because Adam, as the head of his wife, existed in paradise with only one command. Do not usurp the authority of God. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, Adam. God has given you one command, and for you to go against this command is to usurp God's authority and to say that you are God. And so Adam, in paradise, with one temptation, falls. But thousands of years later, the God-man himself, after being baptized, And the Holy Spirit descending with God's approval on him in Mark chapter 2 is thrust not into paradise but into the wilderness. That rather than having every tree to eat of, he has no food and fasts for 40 days. And the tempter comes to him not once, but if you look at the way that this is phrased, he comes over 
and over and over, tempting Jesus, who is truly human in every way. And he tempts him over and over and over again. And this time, it's not with fruit, it's with bread. For you need sustenance. You turn these stones into bread, and your suffering can be over. You say, Jesus, just cast yourself down, the angels will pick you up. I mean, if you will just stop doing what you're, if you will just bow down before me, I will stop blinding people to sin. If you will just bow before me, Jesus, you can accomplish your mission of redemption without the cross. And Jesus perseveres. Because where Adam fell short, Jesus succeeded in every way. From the time that he was an infant to the time that he gave up his own spirit, he never broke God's law once. He fulfilled the law in every respect through fervent prayer and complete faith as a man. And thus, as a man, he can be your new representative. And as God, he can be your savior. That's incredible. It's an amazing thought, friends. And it drives us to worship, to say that the headship of Jesus is offered in contrast to the headship of Satan. That we are either serving sin or serving Christ. But friends, there's a part of this father definition that we haven't gotten to because Jesus as our everlasting father shows us that all men are fallen with Adam and that all believers are raised with Christ and yet when we get to that first word we see that this headship is eternal. It's eternal. That once you come to Christ and repentance and faith, there are no more elections. There is no going back. You have been changed. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are now a part of God's family. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one whom we all serve and submit to. And in joy, he becomes your new master for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is your new father, we could say. The reason that I haven't been using that term is because I don't want you to confuse it with God the Father. He is your new head. And that is for eternity. It will never change. But friend, if you die, the opposite is also true. That if you die in your sin, that headship is also eternal. And you will suffer for eternity in hell unless you turn to Jesus in humility and faith, recognizing that he is God and you are not. I was listening to a, to a preacher this week, and he said something interesting as he gave the gospel on the radio. It's something I think that is 
phrase that is used often, but I think it's, it's very dangerous, and I think it's actually unbiblical, is he said, would you let Jesus into your heart? As though Jesus was some weak, impotent master knocking on the door, begging to come in, and you're trying to make up your mind. But if that's true, friend, you're God, and he's at your disposal. That's not how a person is saved. The way a person is saved is when they bow to the creator of the universe. And they realize that they are dead in sins and they need new life in their spirit. And the Father draws them to salvation and they turn in repentance and faith. And they come and they believe and they place their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone as they bow in humility and in repentance. God is not at your command. You are at his. And so as the head of the Christian race, our everlasting father takes his seal of the Holy Spirit and places it on the hearts of all those who come in faith. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to bow to the everlasting father who can welcome you and will welcome you into his family. There's a new Christmas hymn that was written. I'd like to read for you just the second stanza. I found it so beautiful as it fits right with this theme as we close. The hymn is called, O Savior of Our Fallen Race. Listen to these beautiful words. Remind us, Lord, of life and grace, how once to save our fallen race, you put our human vesture on and came to us as Mary's son. Today, as year by year, its light brings to our world a promised light. One precious truth outshines the sun. Salvation comes from you alone. He is our everlasting Father. He is the head of the church. He is the head of his people. He is our advocate. He is our federal head. He is our representative before the Father. And may we worship him and glory in him and give thanks to him for that fact, that seed that was planted thousands of years ago by Isaiah, growing up in Romans chapter 5 to show us Jesus as our everlasting Father. God, we come before you and we're so thankful that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who gives intercession for us and is our federal head, our, our representative before the Father. And oh God, I know that this was a, a unique sermon in that we dug deeply into the truths of Scripture. But I pray that even if there were some this morning who were here whose perhaps minds wandered and had trouble following, as, as I'm sure it was, I'm sure it could have been presented better, but I pray that you would, you would even take one of these truths that was given and you would drive it down deeply into their soul that they would recognize and worship you as their representative, as their advocate. And if there's one that's here who has yet to turn in repentance from their sin and humble themselves before you, 
that they would have faith this morning. That they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That they would find in heaven rather than a judge that they would find a father. And may you grant us grace during this Christmas season, during this Advent time, that when we see these images of the baby in the manger, that we would see our everlasting Father, our representative for all eternity of righteousness. And may we worship this week with that in mind.